Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning. It is always a joy and a delight to gather together as um, your people. And thank you for the privilege of studying your word. I pray that it would take its root deeply in us, transform us, our hearts and our minds, and produce the fruit um, that you long to see in us. And now may the words of our mouths, mine now, and um, discussion and our groups and the thoughts and the focus of our hearts be pleasing to you because we love you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So this week we are continuing and extending our discussion from last week. And actually, you know what? I'm going to give you 30 seconds to sit down. (laughs) Make it easy for everybody. That way you don't have to feel weird. Isn't that the way it is, though? Always. But I like you, so I like to look at you. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. All right, so we're going to continue and extend our discussion from last week. If you will recall, Lisa did the first part of 1 John chapter 3. So I'm going to walk us through just a real quick review to remember where we are and what the context of today's discussion is. So here's our quick review. Lisa reminded us that we are dearly and lavishly loved daughters of the one true God and that we are called as such to be imitators of God, to take on the nature of our Father And she reminded us that righteous living grows from the seed of God's grace that is planted in our hearts. That was one of my very favorite lines that Lisa gave us. It was such a great way for me to think about that, that righteous living is the fruit um, by which we know the seed of God's grace has taken root in our hearts. And she gave us the challenge. She kind of summed it all up in the challenge to live rightly and to love well to live rightly, and to love well. And so um, Lisa covered in great detail this um, concept of living rightly, and we got our first taste of loving well. And so today, we are diving more deeply into this idea of loving well, what it is, what it looks like, all those kinds of things. Um, And our passage today is that second part of um, 1 John 3. So... Um, Just a heads up, I am going to be reading primarily out of the ESV today. Um, I know we typically as a team like to read out of the NLT, but I... I learned this section in the ESV, and it's what's in my head, and it's I like some of the phrasing, so um, if you will indulge me and let me go with the ESV today, that would be great. Um, so anyways, out of the ESV, um, this chunk, 1 John 3, 11, especially 11 through, um, I guess, 15-ish, is a perfect example of what we have talked about as one of our themes of First John. It's a perfect example of this concept of amplification. Does anybody remember what amplification is? I know it's a stretch. Yes, that's right. It's the idea of circling back to something that's already been talking talked about, oftentimes in a new and different way, oftentimes expanding our understanding of it. 
Um, so this is a perfect example of amplification. Um, he is repeating thoughts that we saw earlier in 1 John 2, this concept of um, the new commandment and the con- loving one another. Um, it's reinforcing this message that we have heard proclaimed from Jesus. That we heard from Jesus and proclaimed to believers. He's reiterating this concept of the love test that we talked about a few weeks ago. And he's expanding our understanding, our definition of love. So it seems kind of fitting that we're having this conversation on Valentine's Day. I love all the red and the pink and the, you ladies who can pull off red really well. I mean, wish I could do that. Um, But here's the deal. We are not going to talk about, I'm not going to regale you with stats about the consumerism of Western Valentine's Day celebrations. We're not going to talk about how Jesus is your Valentine if you don't have one. (laughs) We're not even going to talk about all the various Greek definitions of the word that we translate as love because there are a lot of them. But what we are going to talk about is love and loving well. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to talk about what love isn't. We're going to talk about what love is. And then we're going to take a minute to remember what we know. So right off the bat, in this chunk of verses, in verse 11, John says, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. And he's repeating a phrase he's used once already. This is the message. Um. And it's reiterating this message. Um, It goes all the way back to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34. And he's reiterating the message that Jesus gave to the disciples when he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. So this command to love one another is foundational to the Christian life. And the fruit of love in, is the hallmark of a heart changed by Jesus. So if you want to know who has the seed of God's grace planted firmly in their hearts, if you want to know if you have that seed planted firmly in your own heart, look for the love. So here comes the amplification. John expands our understanding of love, defining it by both what it is and what it isn't. So we're going to tackle the first thing. We're going to talk about what love isn't. He, right off the bat, gives us a negative example in Cain. We should not be like Cain, verse 12, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So, murder is the extreme example, the extreme opposite end of love. And our example here is Cain. Um, This is, in Cain we see someone who has devalued a brother so much that it was nothing to him to take a life. And that is not love. We also see in verse 15 that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and that you should that and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So it's not just murder, because that one we can pretty easily kind of check off and say, 
I haven't murdered anybody lately. Um, gosh, if you haven't murdered anybody lately, check. But then we take it a step farther to hate. And this is this idea of despising a person, to feel disdain for them. And this is equated with murder. And Jesus has equated this idea of hating and anger with um, murder. Jesus tells the religious elite in Matthew 5 that anger and insult against a brother incurs the same judgment as a murder does. So the idea here is that the state of your heart, your internal reality, is just as bad, perhaps worse, than your external reality. So... um, Both of these things, murder and hate, I think, can be grouped together under this heading of contempt. And contempt is this idea of viewing another person as worthless, viewing them as valueless, viewing them as subhuman. And when we think about it that way, we think, well, I haven't really viewed anyone as less than human lately. Um, But here's an example. How about your fellow believer in your neighborhood that has a political sign in your yard that you don't agree with? I'm guessing there are a few. It is very easy for us to join, as Jen Wilkin calls it, the circus of contempt when we are considering political differences. It is very easy for us to view someone as less than when we don't agree with them. Verse 13, I just read, John points out that we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. Living in righteousness is offensive to those who are abiding in death. But in these context, the context of these verses, the implication here is that what should be surprising to us is when our brothers and sisters hate us. Um, this us versus them mentality that can come up, especially when we disagree with one another, has no place among the brothers and sisters. And I think that falls under this heading of contempt. Also, love is not indifferent. We see that in verse uh, 17. But if anyone has world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So this concept of indifference is having no particular interest in or sympathy towards someone else. It's turning away from the needs of a brother or a sister and teaching, it trains our hearts to be unconcerned and apathetic towards another person. So here's an example. First of all, let's, let, let me ask you this. What is the purpose of pain, physical pain in your body? Right, let you know that something's wrong. Usually, when you start feeling pain, what do you do? (laughs) You do something about it, right? Yeah, we'd like it to stop. Okay, Um, I did did classical ballet training for most of my life, close to up to the time I had kids, um, which included point work. And let me tell you, that hurts. But if you ignore that pain, you eventually form calluses on your feet. And it lessens that pain. And it toughens up your skin, and you don't feel it as much anymore. 
I think this is this concept of indifference. When we see our brothers and sisters in need, when we see their pain, when we see their suffering, and we choose to ignore it, we toughen our hearts. We develop spiritual calluses. And I think this is the concept that John is getting at here with this idea of turning away from seeing our brothers and sisters in need. And here's an, here's an example of that. Um, your friend's husband loses her, his job. And you say, we'll be praying for you to get a new one. But you're unwilling to help provide groceries or watch the kids so that they can look for a new house in the area of town they need to be for his potential new job. Um, your neighbor is an older widow and you have the great driveway conversation. I hope you're doing well. Let us know if you need anything. But you see that her driveway and sidewalk are covered with leaves in the fall and it doesn't cross your mind to maybe rake them up or blow them off so she doesn't slip on the way to her car. These are practical ways that we're training our heart to be indifferent to the needs of those around us. So what is at the root of this ideas, these ideas of contempt and indifference? And I would say that at the root of this is pride. At the root of this is a wrongly oriented will. I think a wrongly oriented will is one of the greatest obstacles to love. If you attend New City, you know we just finished up a series called Train Station. And one reoccurring concept that we came up with came up with is that our thoughts lead us to words, lead us to actions, lead us to habits, lead us to a lifestyle. And we see this in the example of Cain that's given to us. Cain offers God an unacceptable sacrifice. And the implication here is that they probably knew what was acceptable. There were probably some rules and guidelines there that, that, they un, that Cain and Abel understood. And Cain chose to ignore them. And so his desire to do what he wanted is violated when God calls him out for it. And it breeds anger. And he indulges that anger, and it becomes envy and contempt for his brother. And that, indulged even further, becomes murder. People, proud people... Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield says that proud people feel entitled to do what they want when they want to. And that doesn't leave us a lot of room for love. I think there's an important distinction here, though, that Cain's action, murdering his brother, isn't the thing that made him far from God. Cain's action was the fruit of a heart that was already far from God. The pride that comes from wrongly oriented will is the natural fruit of a heart that is abiding in death. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that a heart that abides in death produces evil deeds. So the end result of this is death. Whoever does not love abides in death. And yes, physical death, but also death in the here and now. The Greek word here used for death um, denotes this idea of the misery arising from sin, which begins on earth and lasts and increases after the physical death of the body. So let's think about this. How miserable is a life full of impatience and unkindness and envy? 
How exhausting is it always keeping score against someone else? How lonely is it when we are known for being a bragger or rude or irritable all the time? I wonder where you might find yourself harboring contempt for a brother or sister or how you might be um, building the calluses of indifference on your heart. So we know that love is not found in contempt or indifference to fellow believers. So then what is love? And John would love to tell us. Love is, in contrast to contempt, love is esteem. It's this idea of setting a high value on someone and treasuring them accordingly. We all, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, are beloved children of God. And loving one another starts with a right attitude towards our fellow brothers and sisters, seeing them as the image bearers that they are. And a right attitude should manifest itself in treating each other with honor and with respect. So what is the better response to that fellow sister with a different non-essential view than you? Here's another example of how we can treat each other with honor and respect for younger believers, valuing the older believers among us, honoring their experience and their wisdom and their perspective. They've lived a lot of life and we have a lot to gain from them rather than kind of relegating them to not a part of your life. For older believers, valuing younger believers celebrating and encouraging them, even if how they do things might be a little different from the way that you do them. So this attitude of esteem and valuing and treasuring our brothers and sisters in Christ moves us to care as opposed to indifference. Provision of what is necessary for health, welfare, maintenance, and protection of someone. When I was um, dancing there was a season where I wasn't on point and those calluses started coming off. And when we started again, it hurt. So it's this idea of scraping away the calluses from your heart, learning to train yourself to see and respond to the pain and the suffering of um, those around you. And we see that in Jesus, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down for his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. Um, we learn to care in both big ways and small ways. We show love in our actions, both in our willingness to literally sacrifice our lives for each other, as Jesus literally sacrificed his life for us. But I think that most of us are probably not going to run into opportunities to do that. We probably are not going to have instances where we have the opportunity to literally die for someone else. Um, but we're not off the hook. We lay our lives down in small things, too. It's the idea that's, in, that's gotten at in verse 17, that if anyone has world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. So it's the small things, too. Love is a costly thing. We need to be willing to sacrifice. Here's an example. Um, how about your time? That is 
probably hands down the most precious commodity in my life right now. I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, and with all the school things and the church things and the activity things, time is a precious commodity. Am I willing to sacrifice my time for the benefit of a brother or a sister in need? My dad and my brother growing up were great examples of this. They It was nothing to them to drop what they were doing on a Saturday and mow the lawn of the woman down the street or um, do some housework. We had several older families in our neighborhood growing up. There were um, instances where the husband would um, have to be in the hospital for something. It was nothing to them to drop things on a Saturday afternoon and fit in an hour or so of helping around their houses, getting things done. They were great examples for me on um, learning how to do that. I'm, I find myself having to, to look to that even now, 20 years later, remind myself that I need to be willing to stop what I'm doing to respond to the needs of those around me. So, down to verse um, 18. Little children, let us love, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. We love not just in what we say. We love not just in the image that we're projecting. Love is a thing that we do. We show the sincerity of our words by the actions that we take. And at the root of this is humility. A rightly oriented will, as opposed to a wrongly oriented one, is at the root of our ability to love one another. A will that is oriented towards pleasing God. We see those words in verse 22, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. A will oriented towards pleasing God will see living rightly and loving well as a joy, willing submission to God's commands. And our example is Jesus. He had a heart rightly oriented to the will of the Father. He was willing to submit himself to the Father's desires and the Father's commands, even to the point of death. We see that in Philippians. Um, Paul makes this point in Philippians 2, verse 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also of the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We cannot produce a rightly oriented will on our own. It comes only from abiding in Christ and leaning into the power of his spirit within us. Love can flow only from a heart that has drawn near to Jesus. And the end result of this is life. And just like we talked about with death, yes, we mean physical etern- and eternal life, but we also mean um, flourishing life here and now. If death is, a ri- is misery arising from sin, then life is the flourishing heart that arises from righteousness. So what's one step that you can take this week towards rooting out any contempt that you might feel? What's one practical thing you can do to peel off the calluses and to respond to your fellow um, believers' needs? So we've taken a look at what love isn't and a look at what love is, and now we're going to take just a real brief look um, at Paul at John's charge. 
someday I'll stop doing that. Um, apparently today is not the day. <laughs> we'll take a look at the charge John gives us. Um, a charge to remember what you know. And let's think again real quick about the context of this. First John 2, 18 through 27 reminds us that John is talking to um, build up believers against those that have gone out from the gathering believers. There's been some kind of schism or parting of ways among um, this body of believers. And the, those who have gone out are teaching things that are not in line with the gospel. And so he's been reminding them how to evaluate teachers and urging them to continue abiding in Christ and living by the Spirit. And in verse 22 through 24, we see John calming fears and doubts that may have come up when um, believers are looking at these other teachers and kind of going, well, do I have it right? Do we know the truth? Do we what's going on here? So we see him calm, calming these fears, and he starts this way. By this, we shall know we are of the truth. That's verse 19. Um, by what? By the evidence of living rightly and loving well. We know that the gospel's taken roots in our heart when we see what grows. And here's an example. Here's a way that I think of this. These Can everybody see these? Um, okay, great. Um, I was at Trader Joe's the other day, one of my favorite places to buy flowers just for random reasons. Um, and they had this lovely display, and the sign on it said, Assorted Bulbs. Now, if you know things about flowers, there are a lot of things that grow out of bulbs. Daffodils, tulips, hyacinth, I mean, lots. I wanted tulips. So... Here's the sticker right here. It also says assorted bulbs. So my sticker was no help in finding what I wanted. What did I have to look at to find what I wanted? Yeah, the flowers. To know what kind of bulb was planted in this dirt, I needed to look at what grew out of it. Paul is... John. Y'all. Maybe I need one of those like zap collars or something and y'all can just, ay, ay, ay. John is calming fears by assuring believers that they can know that the truth, the hope of the gospel that has been planted in their hearts is real by watching what grows out of it. And in this context, he's talking about living rightly and loving well. These, John MacArthur puts it this way, these qualities, the qualities of serving love and a desire to live in holiness because they come from God, cannot exist in a person who's unregenerate. So how can we be sure we're of the truth? How can we be sure that the seed of grace has taken root in our own hearts? We look and see what's produced in us. So the guarantees that come from living rightly and loving well are this. We have peace with and from God. Our consciences do rightly convict us of sin. They move us to repent and turn back to God. But verses 19 through 20, the implication here is this idea of an overactive conscience. It's this idea of um, spiraling thoughts. Um, Matthew Burden and T. Wright um, in their book, New Testament in Its World, says that our hearts are not the final judge. God overrules them. 
no matter what we feel, what God has forgiven stands forgiven. And that is a very um, encouraging point to me because that is something that I am prone to. I am prone to these spiraling thoughts of, am I, have I, am I a Pharisee, am I, will God someday tell me he doesn't know me? These thoughts spiral over and over and over and over again in my heart sometimes. And here's the thing, feelings lie. So we combat lies with the truth. And the way we do that, Paul, and I mean Paul this time, Paul tells us in Romans that we are to let God transform us into a new person by changing the way we think. And here's a truth that I have had to turn over in my head over and over and over again to combat this conscience that sometimes won't let me be. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, we are at peace with God. And when we root ourselves deeply in that truth, we can settle that heart. We can have peace from God. And we'll be more inclined to boldly approach the throne of grace. We will have confidence in prayer. So think about it this way. When you are walking into a place where you feel confident, how do you walk in? Yeah. How do you walk into a place where you feel like the people there might be looking at you with a little funny? Yeah. When our will is rightly oriented, we can be confident when we approach God in prayer. We can be confident that we will receive what we ask for. John mentions that in 22. Because we will want the things that please him. And God is delighted to give us the things we ask for when the things that we are asking for are things that are pleasing to him. Ray Van Nest says it this way, God is not a butler at our beck and call, but he does intend to do great work for the good of people and the advancement of his kingdom through us and through our prayers. And the final thing we can be assured of is the presence of the Spirit. This is the first time John mentions it in this letter. He says, whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. And next week, we are going to be talking a little bit more about that, about abiding in God, abiding in his love, as well as the presence of his Spirit in us. So come back again for more. So remember this, we are dear daughters of the one true king. As such, we should take on the nature of our father. Lisa reminded us of that last week, which means practicing righteousness and loving well. And these are impossible tasks for us to be doing on our own when we're trying to muscle our way through them. So we must look to our perfect example. We have to look to Jesus. We have to lean into the spirit that he's given us because only in abiding him will we produce the self-sacrificing love that marks us as belonging to the truth. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for these reminders and assurances. I pray again that they would root themselves deeply in our hearts that we would live out of them. We love you. We're grateful for this time. Amen.